Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Each weekday at noon, meet me right here on 90.3 FM or WPLN.org for This is Nashville. We'll go deeper into the news of the day with WPLN news reporters and bring you perspectives you didn't know you were missing. We're making space for you and letting you know our city and region through your eyes. This is Nashville. What's up? This is Nashville. This is Nashville. This is Nashville. This is Nashville. Today, we're talking housing. For people who are unhoused, the journey to long-term or even short-term housing is a long one. We'll meet a few folks on that journey and take a closer look at the services in place to help. But first, Governor Bill Lee recently unveiled a new $9 billion funding formula for public education. Last fall, education officials held town halls across Tennessee to get community input as they drafted this new funding formula for public education. Here's Jackie Pope from Pulaski. When we say the money follows the child, I don't know where that's happening, but it's not in Tennessee. So I would urge this committee to number one, look at funding before we look at how we're going to divide the pie. Because right now, we just have a part of a pie. There's a whole pie out there that we still need. So were Jackie's concerns addressed? Let's find out. I'm joined now by WPLN education reporter Juliana Kim and Ginny Pupo Walker, the Education Trust State Director for Tennessee. Ginny, I want to start with you. What is this funding formula and were Jackie's concerns addressed? Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. You know, I, I think that Jackie's concerns are probably what's top of mind for most Tennesseans, which is really the amount of money that Tennessee puts into K-12 education. You know, we are uh, currently 44th in the country in terms of the amount we spend per pupil uh, in education. And so there, there's a long way for us to go, to even reach the median midpoint uh, in the country. And so Governor Bill Lee in his State of the State a few weeks ago announced that he's putting another $750 million in recurring money into state education, which I think is a huge step forward. So I think he certainly uh, is attempting to address what we would call an adequacy problem, make, meaning is there enough money in the pie? Uh, is the pie big enough? Uh, and then the next question really was resolved last week uh, in terms of how the governor and Commissioner Schwinn want to distribute this money. And so that's really the big question happening now uh, at Legislative Plaza, actually where I am today. I'm up on the hill today talking about this bill. Mm -hmm. Juliana, explain why this is a big deal for Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, first, hi, Jenny. Good hearing your voice. Hi. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, this is a major moment for Tennessee public schools. I think a lot of folks can agree on that. What What's being discussed is a completely new way to distribute billions of state dollars to school districts. And for a long time, people have been saying our cur current formula isn't working. You know, it's not calculating the right amount of funding for districts to actually meet the needs of their students. So this is an opportunity to change that. Is this like a super major, important, huge upgrade to what we've been doing? I'd say so. I mean, our current formula is something known as resource-based. 
And I won't get into the weeds of that, but this is something known as student-based, which a majority of states in the country actually use. And it's a little complicated, but the idea is that this formula calculates how much money Tennessee should give each school by looking at what each individual student needs. And the best way that I can explain the difference is that in this new formula, the main character is the student. And in our current or older formula, the main character is staff salaries and materials for classrooms. So it's a complete kind of mental shift in how to approach funding. Focus on the actual student learning rather than the resources around them. I like that a lot. Now, Ginny, you've been advocating for this for the past few years. Tell us why. Well, you know, uh, the, the work that the Education Trust does and has done for the past 25 years is really to advocate on addressing the real gaps in opportunity uh, and outcomes and achievement for primarily students of color, students from low-income backgrounds, uh, English learners, students with disabilities, and, and, and also we've been in Tennessee ad- advocating on rural student uh, needs. And so when we think about uh, the way that our, as Juliana so uh, well explained, the way our money is distributed right now, it's not really designed to support districts and schools as they need it. I think any superintendent will tell you that. When we think about, uh, when as Ed Trust began to think about advocating on this issue, we knew that this is one of the most complicated school policy issues uh, there is. And most folks are just unwilling to tackle school finance. They feel like they don't have the skills or the chops or the background. Mm -hmm. So we spent the last two years helping train folks and helping lead conversations around how school finance works. Where do we have issues? Where can we find solutions? And, And that really got us to where we are today. Now, will students receive extra funding for specific needs they may have? Well, so the way that this draft formula, right, this is still a bill, uh, is designed today is that there is a really large chunk of money that will be distributed according to a student's what we call characteristics. So if a student uh, qualifies, for example, for a free lunch or for SNAP or food benefits, um, they would get in this formula almost double the amount of money that they would be getting uh, in the, under the BEP, the current formula. And so we also see additional money uh, given to students with disabilities on a whole range and from, from low levels of support, whether it, maybe it's a learning disability, all the way up to students that require just one-on-one staff time in particular, have a particular health needs. So this bill will actually deliver more money based on students' traits. The other one that's important to note here is that there's a, a weight, as we call it, for rural students. If you are in a district um, based on the, the number of students per square mile, you get additional money. So they've really thought about sort of what we know to be national best practices around distributing money based on student need. So this is like a statewide proposal, but Jenny, what would be the impact on our local public schools here? Well, so that is, uh, you know, the the old statement, the devil's in the details. What we know is that the, the state released a spreadsheet with what each district in Tennessee would receive. And part of that formula that we create, so that what the state has said and what the state has always done is they fund a certain percentage of public education and the local county then has to match based on what we call their local fiscal capacity, meaning how much revenue they generate based on uh, property taxes. And so a city like Nashville generates a lot more uh, wealth and has a higher fiscal burden to pay than a distressed rural county where there's very little uh, revenue. So tenant, so Nashville in particular 
may come out not as well as other districts simply because we have more revenue that we generate that we have to cover in terms of the balance of the of the formula there is still a lot to be learned there's a lot of undefined sort of characteristics and and what these what we call weights will look like how much they will be um how much what we call the base i know i'm getting into the details here we have a we Juliana knows we released a whole template yesterday, a report, a tool on this issue. Um, but we don't know a lot about how the calculations will happen yet. So there's, I know there's concern in Nashville about how it's going to play out for us. Um, every district in Tennessee will be looking closely at, uh, at what this will look like for them. Now, Juliana, Jeannie mentioned a little bit this a little bit earlier, talking about like how rural areas and rural schools are really going to be funded. How would that work? You know, this historic lack of funding that rural schools have had. What are the limitations and barriers to really setting something like that up with this program? Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to defining uh, a student who lives in a rural area, it's really tough. And we saw that during this uh, the past few months as, uh, you know, state leaders were crafting, uh, you know, crafting the formula. There's a lot of nuance, especially in Tennessee, right? We have this kind of vast landscape of mountains and rivers. Mm. Uh, So geographically, uh, there are challenges with defining rule. And what uh, there's a rule and small district subcommittee that helped create this kind of a definition or who should be included in this extra weight. And uh, and they said it themselves, you know, that rural areas in Tennessee can differ in population, density, geographic size, proximity to cities. And so there's as they've been looking for examples, there hasn't been one that one definition that's one size fits all. Mm. And I think even the the form, the definition that's been proposed in this legislation, surprisingly to me, didn't include all of that nuance. It, it was uh mainly based on, uh, you know, number of students. So I'm curious to see what I'm still, you know, working on finding out what the reactions are from rural stakeholders. Okay. Now, I think a lot of parents are going to have a lot of questions about how this will impact them and their children. What happens next? Like, what will you be monitoring as you continue to report on this? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, for all the work that's been put into this, there's still a pretty long road ahead and there's some hesitation or worry that it might not get passed uh, this year uh, because right now, at, you know, it still has to get signed off by the General Assembly and governor. And we know that there has uh, the bill is going to go through at least seven committees. Mm. Uh, it's going to be vetted uh, by seven committees at least uh, before it goes on to the, um, you know, gets voted on and it goes to the governor's desk. So there's a lot of different moving parts. So we'll just be, uh, you know, make uh, kind of uh, we'll have a lot of coverage on how likely this bill will pass this year. And we're also going to do a lot of deep dives on how this is going to meet uh, students with unique needs. That is WPLN education reporter Juliana Kim and Ginny Pupo Walker from Tennessee's Education Trust. Thank you both for joining us. After the break, we explore a strategy that prioritizes getting unhoused people shelter before tackling other services. We talk with local people who have lived experience. We'll pick up that discussion in a moment. This is Nashville. Welcome back. This is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliolei Colonna. Services for low-income Nashvilleians are decentralized. Some local advocates call this a time tax on the poor, meaning 
it takes a lot of time and a lot of paperwork just to get a little bit of help. Our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, has been spending time with a few folks on this long road to housing to get a better sense of what it takes. Tammy and her adult son, Ray, have been living outdoors together for about five years. We're using their first names only because of safety concerns. Tasha met up with them at a Hardee's this winter for yet another meeting with their outreach worker. This morning, we're sitting with India Pung Archer at a Hardee's over some tater tots and soda. We're starting the first page of a really long process towards Section 8 housing. India's an outreach worker for Open Table Nashville. You said you've been experiencing homelessness for the last five years. Do you know about when that started? Um, it's when, after I lost my husband, and I kind of hung on there for a while, and then I had two jobs to survive. Then I lost those, and I had no choice, but I didn't want to have foreclosure or nothing on me, so I sold my home. And we've just been downhill trying to survive. Since India's got all of Tammy and Ray's identification and information, she's able to work on more than one thing at a time, and she dives right in. First thing today, she worked on applying for a year-long bus pass for both of them. And then... Next, we have lots of paperwork for housing. Um, I know you already did the VSPDAT with Emery before, um, but I wanted to see if you could redo it just in case anything's changed and in case your score has um, increased a little bit more because that can only put you up higher on the list. The VSPDAT, or Vulnerability Index Service Prioritization Decision Assistance Tool. It's a long and intimate questionnaire meant to identify risk and help to prioritize housing assistance. India's getting updated answers for Tammy, and she's working on Ray's at the same time. First, she calculates their income, vouches for their living status, and collects original documents like birth certificates. It makes me nervous when I get rid of originals. Well, I, I know how valuable these are, and I cannot tell you the number of these I have uh, had to get for people, so I will guard these with my life, quite literally. Okay, so now we're on to the Vispadat. First category was about where Tammy and Ray stay at night and how long they've been unhoused. The next category is about risks. In the past six months, how many times would you say that you've received care at an emergency department or emergency room? You used a crisis service, including sexual assault crisis, mental health crisis, family intimate violence, distress centers, or suicide prevention hotlines. Have you talked to police because you witnessed a crime or because the police told you that you need to move along? Stayed one or more nights in a holding cell, jail, or prison. Um, have you been attacked or beaten up since you've become homeless? Um, does anybody force you or trick you to do things that you do not want to do? Yeah. It's a lot. Okay. Um, do you have planned activities other than just surviving that make you feel happy or fulfilled? Well, there's nothing happy out there. You always, it's a struggle trying to get from day to day to have money to eat or something to drink or those things. It's just a struggle every day. Can you put no for that question? Um, do you have planned activities other than just surviving that make you feel happy or fulfilled? You know, if it's day by day for me, just to eat to get to the next day and wake up, be warm, and repeat the next day, I mean. Having to put no also. There's still a few pages to go. India explains that normally we want to sound better on an application for something. In this case, Tammy and Ray need to be as honest and, well, vulnerable as possible about their vulnerabilities so they can be put on a list where more vulnerability should mean quicker housing. 
Though quicker, it might not be very quick. I will say this is just to get on a list to be considered for Section 8. Then once your name comes up, then you have to submit an application for the Section 8 program. So that is a huge long packet that asks for even more details and proof of all of these details. And then that packet is submitted to MDHA, they review the information, and then they approve or deny um, the application. And then if they approve it, you have this briefing where then you, you go... Tammy and Ray kind of um, stare at India. They gloss over. And then Ray visibly sinks into the booth. His shoulders are slumped. Um, but yeah, you sign and get your voucher, and then it is a sprint because you have 90 days to find an apartment with your voucher. And then you also have to submit all of the application um, to apply to each of those apartment complexes also. So this is just to get on the list to be considered for the voucher. Just hearing you say that just, like, took hope out of me. I mean, yeah, like, I'm still going to be out here a while, probably, like. So that's it for today. India will submit this round of paperwork, and for now, Tammy and Ray, they're going back to their campsite. I was born and raised here my whole entire life. I never thought all this would happen, never, and be in this shape. I used to actually work in stuff for a lot of these big buildings you see downtown and, and all that and, you know, never even thought about the homeless like this, but it's really different, but this is natural. We're going to check back in on Tammy and Ray later on in the show. But for now, I want to introduce a few guests who can relate to a lot of what we just heard. Kim Perkins and Alan Searson, thank you both for coming on to the show to share your stories with us. Kim, I'll start with you. What about Tammy and Ray's stories stood out to you? Um, I can, I mean, I can definitely relate because it's, uh, you know, I've seen both sides of the city. I'm, I'm not originally from here, but I've lived here since 2014. And, um, you know, it's not easy, you know, it's definitely a day-to-day battle, you know, making sure you have money to eat and just to get through the day. So, you know, I can definitely relate as far as that goes. <laughs> Alan. How about you? Have you experienced similar difficulties? Yes, oh, definitely. I like the test Andy was giving Tammy and Ray that. I, I think I took I took that last year. And I, I'm a male, and and I scored I scored low on, so it didn't help me at all doing that. But I, um, I do I did take that test and know the difficulties of it. Now, when you took that test, you know, uh, Tasha talked about how. Ray just kind of sunk in with the enormity of all the questions. And then as the process of the process was being explained to him, he got like visibly depressed. Did that happen to you as you were going through in your experience? Yeah, because it was a really complicated test. And, you know, I, I could tell from my answers, you know, it was on your vulnerability and, and how susceptible you were to things. And, I, you know, I, being a single male by myself, I would, you know, I, I scored lows with, uh, on, on that. And uh, so I knew it was, this wasn't doing me any good at all. And pretty much just a waste of time, my time. Hmm. Now, Ken, tell me about what your housing situation is like now. Are you in a permanent place? Uh, no, sir. I'm not. Uh, right now, I'm actually uh, in a program. It's a 90-day program. And um, they, you know, help you go on to the next step. 
So as you're waiting for these programs, as you're waiting for this next step, what's going through your mind? How are you feeling? Alan, let me ask you yeah. this. You know, how are you feeling as you're going through the process and this these process. steps? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm doing pretty good I, I, for the situation. I, I've gotten into housing and, and I haven't been the proof for my section eight yet, uh, voucher. And it's kind of complicated things in my, with my rent and stuff. But, uh, for the moment I've got, you know, I, I got moved into, uh, into a, a place that I like. And so for the time being, I'm, if, as long as I get to stay there, I'm, I'm happy. Okay. I, I'm 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 happy that you are. But Alan, talk to me about like, you know, you were talking about the difficulty and the stresses of being vulnerable, of being yeah. a, a male who's out there on your own. I wonder if there's different ways that males are viewed in this situation. But, you know, what what about the loss of hope? What what was that like? Did you ever feel like giving up? Well, I know I'll never completely, but it, it does get depressing because you you know, I started like looking going through public housing, uh, housing assistance, like the beginning of almost last year or the spring of last year, my first started signing up, trying to get a section eight voucher voucher. And I actually didn't get that last year at all. I mean, just never worked. And I still haven't gotten it, but I've, I've met up with some, some groups, a uh, couple of groups, always oh, charity groups that have helped me out and they've helped me get a place for the time being. And so, I'm, I'm doing all right as far as that, but it is the third question. You go through a lot of, you think you got something lined up and it's going to work out and then it just falls out, falls flat and you start at square one again. What has helped you keep that faith? Uh, just persistent, just something, keep at it and uh, don't give up and just, and eventually it worked out. And so far it's, it's working out for me. Hmm. So you're listening to This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. I've been visiting with Kim Perkins and Alan Searson about their experience finding housing. We recently met someone else on that path. His name is Juan Brito. He goes by Grodo, and he lives in a tent at the campsite across town from Tammy and Ray's. He has spent years living outdoors, and there are things about it he enjoys. But still, he says he dreams about living inside. I would like to have housing. 100%. I would love to have a toilet to flush. I would love to wash my hair, brush my teeth on a daily basis. I would love to be able to have toilet paper and not have to worry about where I'm going to get it from. Okay. Uh, I would like to, I've got a TV. I've got a nice little setup here. You know, I don't do drugs or anything. So I've got, a, I've got a home, basically. I just have nowhere to keep it except for here. I'd like to introduce our next guest, David Langelmartin. David is a housing advocate here in Nashville who runs Park Center. David, welcome to This Is Nashville. Well, thanks so much for having me. Now, Grodo is talking about a lot of things that a lot of us take for granted. So, David, you're here to talk about housing first, that model. Break it down for us. How would it address some of Grodo's concerns? Sure, I appreciate you covering the topic. Um, I'll do my best to break it down concisely. I'm not known for my brevity, but I'll, I'll do my best. Neither um, am I, but w hey, let's do this. <laughs> um, housing First is an approach to ending homelessness that begins with first getting folks back into housing as quickly as possible, and then offering supportive services that are flexible um, that can help prevent future loss of housing. 
So another way of saying that housing first starts by first asking people what they need and for people like me uh, to stop assuming that we know what's best and, and to listen and to um, prioritize uh, what people are asking for. Now, how is this different from other services? Well, it replaces a universal emergency shelter and transitional housing model that we were doing you know, in the early 2000s and before. Um, everyone was given kind of the same community response where they were expected to stay in a shelter for a while, maybe go through a transitional housing program and demonstrate housing readiness before they were offered um, a permanent housing opportunity. The problem with that is that it, it assumes sort of um, that there's a homogenous group of folks who are unhoused, which is not true. And so by starting with um, ending homelessness as quickly as possible, you can prevent things from spiraling out of control, becoming much worse than they need to be, and then tailoring the supports to the need. Some folks only need a subsidy, um, a rental subsidy. Some people need short-term services, some more intensive. And then other folks might need longer-term, um, more intensive services known as permanent supportive housing. So there, there are a couple of different program models under the Housing First umbrella. The most popular in Nashville is called Rapid Rehousing, which does help um, provide uh, housing location and um, support services, but they taper off about 20, uh, nine to 24 months. Mm -hmm. uh, permanent supportive housing um, is for a smaller percentage of folks who need a little bit more. And unfortunately, um, it's very misunderstood um, and misrepresented, almost non-existent in our community. Now, do programs like Housing First shorten the time it takes for people to be housed? I mean, besides the obvious benefit of providing immediate housing, in what other ways does Housing First and that approach help? Yeah, well, I think it it sort of builds off of people's strengths and looks at what people's supports they have in their lives already. Some folks are able to reach out to friends or family. Others aren't, um, don't have the benefit of having that support network. Um, and so they we're able to fill in those gaps, but the issue becomes people wait and wade through, you know, trudge through the muck that you described earlier and that we heard from um, India and Kim talk about for months or years only to get into housing. Um, then, suddenly find themselves not having the support they need to sustain that. Um, and housing first helps not only extend, you know, housing tenure, but it helps prevent future loss of housing. So we also met Kayla Phillips. She lives with Grodo. They're both waiting for Section 8 housing. While they wait, they're living in Tent City, one of the largest encampments in Middle Tennessee. But Kayla is worried that this place they call home will get pulled out from under them. It's like stressing a lot of us out down there because not only the people who got Section 8, they got to worry about housing, but the people that doesn't, they got to worry about, oh, are they going to come tomorrow? Because they've already kicked us out from Jefferson Street Bridge. They've kicked us out from so many places, Ellington Bridge, everywhere. And it's like we have nowhere to turn. Now, this is another problem, going through the process to get housing, but facing displacement even from your temporary home at a campsite. Now, Alan, where do you think the Housing First model falls short? Uh, I'm, I'm not really uh, sure. You just yeah, get the housing. And you, they do need the support after you get a place. You, you know, you, it does take, got to go on with it. So I, 
I'm not sure what war the war would what I would say about that. Hmm. Now, David, ask answer this for me. Like, how can people who are relying on services like Housing First, how can they rely on them when they're so mobile with their living situation currently? I mean, what are they to do in this situation? Sure. Well, Housing First is designed to address some of those specific issues. Um, one of the problems that we're having in our community is that it's not funded. And so, like I said earlier, Housing First, um, let me back up. Housing First is a philosophy and it's also an intervention. So the philosophy of getting someone to housing as quickly as possible is kind of the overarching theme. But the, the program of Housing First um, you know, outside of rapid rehousing, which which does exist and is well funded in our community for folks who need a longer ongoing support that doesn't it's not available. And so, um, you know, there are many folks who have had the unfortunate experience of losing their housing where they should be able to be rehoused or um, unfortunately have lost their lives because the support services that would be you know, the answer to some of those issues, not for everyone, but for many, don't exist. And so, um, you know, Housing First is not housing only. It's a very intensive and specialized set of support services that are, that are um, uh, you know, it exists that can support people in maintaining. Alan, let me ask you this. What would you like to see change about the services that are offered? Well, just help uh, to find more uh, find more housing, and, and it, the process takes so long. Like I said, I I've been doing it two years, almost two years now, and I still really haven't gotten approved my my voucher, as they would say. I mean, it's just a lot of a lot of waiting and, and uh, paperwork, and and it just it needs to be a quicker process. Yeah, expedite this process. That is. Alan Searson, Alan, thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Kim and David are sticking with us through the break. When we come back, we'll talk about why Housing First may not suffice and get into wraparound services, what help needs are provided and when. That's after the break. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about the grueling process toward housing for the unhoused. Before the break, we were exploring a strategy known as Housing First, which places people in housing before they address any other services needed. But given that it's such a long process, some believe Housing First falls short when there are so many other issues in the mix, like addiction. David Langle Martin from Park Center and Kim Perkins are still with us. Kim, I understand you have experienced addiction. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, it's been a long battle for me. I started I started using it at around the age of eighteen, and I'm forty six now. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's been a long, long battle for me. Um, but uh, I've been clean this this time around uh, 71 days, so mm-hmm. definitely a, a, a day by day thing, one day at a time, sometimes one minute at a time. Yeah. But 
I'm trying to survive. You know, I'm a fighter, so I don't give up that easy. <laughs> Help help me understand how battling addiction makes seeking housing harder. Um, because, you know, uh, basically you just want to try to get well first, you know, and worrying about trying to find medicine or, you know, just to be able to start your day, um, you know, is a... It's a battle right there in itself, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. it really, you know, really puts a struggle on things. You know, you don't, your focus isn't quite on what, you know, the things you really need. It's, it's focusing on, you know, your habit and just trying to feel better, especially, you know, being an opiate addict. So it's been very difficult for me. <laughs> when you were looking for housing and battling addiction, what services were available to you? Which ones helped out? Uh, there's been very, uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of places have helped me, um, Open Table, Salvation Army, um, I have, uh, Mental Health Co-op has helped, um, but, um, you know, between Open Table and the Salvation Army, they have really done a lot for me, um, you know, trying to help me however they can to, to keep me off the street, you know, so I'm truly grateful for them. David. Do you think the Housing First model would help someone who was struggling like Kim was? Absolutely. Um, I mean, Housing First and addiction treatment are not mutually exclusive, and they both need to be funded and and well-funded. And, you know, to your earlier point, what do people do while they're waiting? I think first we have to look at how we can reduce the wait time. Um, There are many folks in addiction who are not, um, interested in treatment or not ready for treatment, if they were offered one of the options that are available in the community for a recovery program, they may not take it. Um, sometimes the best way to help someone kind of consider that is to first address their uh, the challenge of trying to survive every day, give them some space to exhale, to feel like they can start to think about what they would like their life to look like and to dream again and to offer that kind of hope. And then um, also that that addresses the trauma that they've experienced prior to homelessness, the experience of traumatic homelessness itself and help you know give that sense of safety that they can then consider whether addiction treatment is right for them. And so housing first, you know, it's supposed to make housing available as quickly as possible. In the meantime, we need um, you know more, more funding for other services like shelters that would take people with um, you know, to adults or pets or, you know, other um, issues, you know, gaps that we see in the community. But in general, um, I think the most important thing to, to consider is Housing First is an intervention intended to end homelessness. And it's not um, specific to uh, treating addiction. Uh, there's a lot of overlap there, but those are, those are two different um, goals. Mm-hmm. I'd like to bring in our next guest. Laurie Green is the director of SafePaw, the Southern Alliance for People and Animal Welfare here in Nashville. Laurie, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. Now, you've been an advocate for our unhoused neighbors and their pets for a long time. From your ex- Yes, going on 21 years. That's fantastic. From your experience, what approach works best? I have always advocated the housing first model 
the problem is that Nashville has not been good with the funding after someone is placed into housing, and that is where we are losing people. I absolutely agree that rehabilitation programs, recovery, mental health programs cannot be a requirement for housing, and they should not be. David was absolutely right in saying that someone needs time to breathe, to um, get used to having a roof over their head. They definitely do, but the problem is that we need to also reach for housing stability, not just housing. And I, in my 20 years, 20 plus years, I've seen that. I've gotten the calls, countless number of calls every day. Miss Laurie, I lost my housing. Do you have a tent? They lost their housing because they couldn't sustain it. The aftercare, that portion of housing first is as important as any other aspect of housing first. The whole term housing first to me implies first we get housing, then we work on other issues. We don't have enough people in this field to do a minimum of weekly visits, a minimum of 30 minutes to gain the person's trust, to see what issues are plaguing them and what issues might cause them to lose their housing. Is it addiction? Is it mental illness? Do they, are they willing to look at rehabilitation and will we save their apartment for them while they try it? And do we make it clear to them after they've had time to breathe, this program is not gonna be a requirement for your housing, but would you go in and try it? Would you try life without drugs? We don't have that support because we don't have enough people to go by. And I've been guilty of it too with people I've gotten into housing. I meant to go by every week. I meant to go by and check on them. I had one gentleman that to this day breaks my heart. He, we got him into housing. He was happy. And then the predatory drug dealers mm. zoom in. They know where to go. And he called me about a year and a half later and he said it was a call he didn't want to make, but he had to tell me, Miss Laurie, I'm moving. I, I'm giving up my apartment. And he said, I just cannot stay in recovery if I'm going to remain here. Mm. And so he went back outside. We found a spring house in back of a cemetery and he lived there till he died. He died of natural causes. But the failure in that was that we weren't there for him to see where he was living first of all that it wasn't right for him that's another aspect there are so many aspects that we could yeah delve into but one is that all housing does not work for all people you know we need to look at more scattered site housing for him for pops that might have worked if he could have been somewhere where he wasn't the target of predatory drug dealers. For others, a woman that I worked with who struggled with mental illness, she was in an apartment right in the middle of the busiest unit that they had there, the busiest building in their complex. It was just the stress on her of all the people and activity and noise. It, it, I would go by the apartment and she would just be pacing. I begged the manager, let's move her to a corner apartment. Let's move her to another apartment complex in your in your inventory. Could we get a corner apartment where she's not bombarded? And they would not do it. They would not move her. They wouldn't even consider it. Now, Kim, you have been through this yourself. 
How would you respond to what Laurie just shared with us? Uh, you know, I can I can agree. Um, you know, definitely the housing, you know, can make a big difference. You know, having a time to breathe and then, you know, addressing the, the different issues that you have. You know, um, I can see both sides. You know, um, you know, I once I you know I had the housing uh, grant, the year long, the very long grant, and I. You know, was pretty heavy into my addiction then, and then I did go into treatment uh, because I had several overdoses, and I tended to isolate. Being, you know, when I was in the housing, you know, um, and I, you know, did go into treatment, and that helped me a lot. You know, it, it did help start building my self-esteem, having, you know, having a roof over my head and then knowing that there was something to live for. But unfortunately, when my year was up, I had to go, I went back out onto the street because I hadn't had my Section 8 ready for me yet, you know, because the process is so long. So I had to go back out to the street and I had to relapse um, because it's very difficult to try to stay clean and being on the street, you know, especially being a female. Um, but uh, back in, you know, now that I'm back into the program again, um, you know, and I'm, you know, clean, I've been clean 71 days, and so I have a little bit different perspective. I just, my biggest fear is having to be put back out onto the streets again, you know, but I, I've been promised that, you know, I won't have to worry about that, you know, as long as I just, you know, continue to stay on the right path and do what I need to do. You know, I, my addiction that goes along with mental health, I have both. I'm, I'm dual diagnosed, so I have mental health issues that goes along with my addiction. So it's like I have twice the battle, you know, <clears throat> but it's a day-by-day process. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, I admire your, your strength and your ability to keep on going. We recently talked to Terry Warren, who is in rapid rehousing program with his adult daughter. Terry is in recovery himself, and he has some pretty specific thoughts on how to do housing first well. First, get the people that really need help off of their drugs. They need counselors, somebody to get in there and actually work with them, because if they don't, when you move them to, to housing, guess what? You're moving the drugs right along with them. So... David, a few minutes ago, Laurie was talking about the lack of people on hand to provide the intensive kind of care needed to help people work through their addictions while seeking housing. And Terry just talked about this, too. How would you respond? Uh, they're both exactly right. The Housing First intervention has not been funded here locally. It almost does not exist. And so when I hear folks criticize it, I think unless you've been in another community, you probably haven't seen it. Um, we need folks available to meet with people daily if that's what's needed. There's a well-established model um, that's supported by Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration with a, a outlining exactly what needs to be done to get the best results. It's not a guarantee for everyone, but I believe we have an ethical and a fiscal responsibility to use the approach that we know that the evidence supports is most likely to get the best results for people. And us not providing that in our community is unacceptable. It, it would be like all of the hospitals in our community not providing 
um, you know, stents for heart issue. You know, it, there are services that are out there that we know work that have not been funded here locally. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the services available for our unhoused neighbors as they seek housing. I'm joined by Kim Perkins, who was formerly unhoused but now lives in mobile housing. Also with us are housing advocates, Laurie Green from Safe Paul and David Langle Martin from Park Center. So, Laurie, I want to ask, is there a way to combine the best of what the housing first approach has to offer with other models of help? Well, I don't think we need to combine anything. Housing first, as it was intended, is enough if a city properly funds it. And therein lies the problem. We have not been willing to properly fund it. There is nothing about any of my philosophy that believes that you should have demands made on you before housing. I fully support the initial entry into housing first, that you should first be housed. Nor do I think you should be forced to accept mental health meds, forced to accept rehabilitation, forced to accept recovery. First of all, forced doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. But second of all, we need to make things trusting for people. We need to give them a trusting space so that they know that their apartment is theirs. It's permanent. It's there for them. Then we need to go about supporting them and enabling them to stay in that house giving them the tools if they choose to drink but can keep their apartment and their neighbors can live together with them in harmony and unity then fine no one is saying they must stop drinking but if their addiction is threatening to end their life if their addiction is threatening to end all housing stability then we need to step in and work with them david quickly and offer them options Options. Options. I hear you. David, quickly, your response. I I can't agree more. Um, We just need to decide as a community that we're going to properly fund the Housing First intervention. Um, We at Park Center um, have done what we can to pilot this for the last year. We've uh, essentially cobbled together the funding on our own to start doing it because no one else is. And we're starting small, but hoping we can grow very soon. Um, but it's not enough. And we, we really owe it to the folks who are, um, you know, having to go through the heartbreaking, um, experience of losing their housing, um, to do, to do it, to provide what's available that we know, um, that is, that can be provided. And we owe it to the landlords that are taking chances on folks who are asking for tenant support for help educating folks on how to pay their rent and take care of their property and their neighbors and, and all of that. Kim, I want to give you the last word here. What would you like to see change about services offered here in Nashville? Uh, I would just, I mean, just like the process of getting into the housing. Um, just, you know, maybe a faster way of, you know, receiving help. It just it seems like it, it it's so long and drawn out that, you know, you pretty much give up because, you know, it takes so long. You know, so I would just hope like to see a faster process, some way of doing, take, you know, getting it moving along faster. I want to thank you, Kim. Thank you to Kim Perkins, Laurie Green, and David Langle Martin. Okay, before we leave for the day, we've got some news. We met Tammy Ray 
and Ray earlier in the episode, and we heard about the long and uncertain path to Section 8 housing. Well, our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, has been keeping in touch, and we've got some good news. They have both been approved for rapid rehousing and recently moved into a temporary unit. After five years living outdoors, a double bed, heat, and electricity are a blessing. Tasha caught up with Tammy the night they moved in and asked her how she was feeling. Excitement, just to relax and no noise, no nothing, not worry about this or that, and just peace and prayer, prayer. Thank you, God. <laughs> thank you, God. I couldn't pray enough to get here, and now I just have to thank God each and every day we're in here now, and we're out of the cold, and that's a blessing. That's a true blessing from God. So we're moving forward. I'm not going backwards. Congratulations to Tammy and her son, Ray. And a shout out to all of the providers who helped them along the way. Seriously, a big shout out. We're looking forward to some more good updates. We really want to thank everyone who joined us this hour for This Is Nashville. Tomorrow is the two-year anniversary of the March 2020 tornado. What has changed since? More importantly, what hasn't? We want you to tune in with us here at This Is Nashville. This Is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back to this episode at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. And our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Our theme music comes from Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks, special thanks to India Pongarcher, Lisa Waisaki, Kathy Jennings, Harriet Wallace, and Lisa Cook. The conversation doesn't end there. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. Thank you.